Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. On today's program, we cover climate change, China, and the coup and resistance in Burma or Myanmar. We begin with eco-socialist writer and activist Richard Smith. On April 23rd, we had Earth Day, and President Biden announced a very ambitious green infrastructure package. At the same time, China has posted an 18.3% growth rate for the first quarter this year, while promising to reach carbon neutrality by 2060 and turning China into an ecological civilization. What does this tell us? Richard Smith, founding member of System Change, Not Climate Change, and author of China's Engine of Environmental Collapse, looks at the environmental costs of China's rapid growth, as well as its green claims. We'll get his understanding of this seeming paradox. We then turn to Myanmar or Burma. Spanish journalist Carlos Sardinia Galache writes about Burma and Southeast Asia, and he joins us to discuss the full-scale civil conflict underway in Myanmar, steadily escalating since the military coup of February 1st, despite the ferociously repressive violence from the military against the protesters and strike movement, which now threatens economic collapse. We are fortunate to get Carlos's analysis. All this when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and really pleased to have Richard Smith back with us again. He's a founding member of System Change, Not Climate Change, and he's also the author of China's Engine of Environmental Collapse, a new book, relatively new book, and Green Capitalism, The God That Failed. And he's with us to discuss, well, we're going to be talking about climate change, but also China's pollution of air, water, and soil, the way that it's wasting resources and contributing to climate change. And I should just say that, you know, this week we saw Earth Day on April 23rd. And so that means that the coverage of climate change is back in the news. But it isn't just Earth Day. President Biden just announced a very ambitious green infrastructure package. And at the same time, China in the last couple of weeks has posted an 18.3 percent growth rate for the very first quarter of this year. So what does that tell us? Richard Smith, as I mentioned, is the author of China's Engine of Environmental Collapse. And we're going to talk about what that means. So first, welcome Richard Smith to Jacobin Radio. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. But I want to begin with the Biden administration, and then we can move into China and start with, you know, their ambitious pledge to cut emissions by 50 percent by 2030. And even though Biden did not campaign on a Green New Deal, as in so many other areas of his administration, he has surprised us with uh, how much more progressive his proposals are than his campaign indicated. And he has clearly put forward, I guess, the greenest set of proposals we've ever seen by a U.S. administration. So first, how do you evaluate those proposals and his pledge to cut U.S. emissions? Do you think it's possible? I think it's possible to cut some emissions, but the focus in Biden's plan is mostly 
there aren't a lot of specifics, but the focus in Biden's plan is mostly on electric cars, electric vehicle charging stations, and so on and so forth. But there are many other areas of the economy that are not really touched by those. The big problem for the U.S. as well as for China is what are called the hard-to-abate industries. Steel, cement, uh, aluminum, chemicals, construction, many of these industries, plastics and pesticides, all kinds of industries that are difficult to evade. It's easy, comparatively easy to replace fossil fuel power, coal-powered power plants with natural gas, which is less polluting in theory, or with renewable sun and wind plants. But the other industry, the major industries of the economy are much harder to abate. They're the same problem in China as in the U.S. Shipping, aviation, cement, road transportation, railroads, electronics, textiles, chemicals, plastics, all these what are collectively known as the hard to abate industries. These have no immediate easy solution like uh, solar power or wind power. And so the problem for those is basically the only way to dramatically curtail pollution from those industries in the short to medium term is to reduce production of those. But Biden's plan does not foresee any of that. (laughs) Biden's plan is a growth plan. It's for building more infrastructure, more roads, more cement, and so on and so forth. We do need some more infrastructure, that's true, but it depends on what. The fetish of roads and uh, bridges and this kind of stuff, the auto-centered economy, it doesn't have anything in there about high-speed trains or about urban transportation, about very little money for urban transportation. I think it's going to be very tough for him to cut emissions dramatically. You can cut them some, but it's going to be very hard to cut them dramatically, especially in the very short time he has. Because what you would really have to do is start shutting down a lot of industries, and that would mean unemploying people. He'd have to have a jobs program for all of those. And as he's going to shut down the fossil fuel industries, well, you know, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that. One thing that's really interesting in all of that, Richard, is that we're in the midst, hopefully coming to the end, of this pandemic that created an artificial stoppage of the economy. In other words, that it was forced and then we saw the role of not just in the United States, but around the world of the governments and the central banks deciding that because interest rates were low and because the need was vast and it's a matter of life and death, not for the ecology of the planet, but for the survival of humans, that most industry was stopped, not all of it, and most commerce was stopped and governments coughed up. And one kind of byproduct that came out of this this last week during Earth Day was that PP&E and and the requirements of safe interactions such as they were meant that there was a vastly increased use of plastics, plastic masks, plastic bags at the stores. You no longer can use your reusable bags if you go to the store and if you have it delivered. Again, lots more plastic. And it turns out now that, you know, people use these masks, paper masks, and then discard them. And they have those loops around the ears that, you know, they're finding in the ocean or are catching up fish and birds are eating them. And so it's unfortunate nobody thought about that. And on the other hand, you really need to wear the masks. So I just wondered, like, you know, what your sort of impressions or comments are on that aspect, that in this case, we had to augment our plastic use. Not only augment it, but use more and more disposable plastics. Yeah. I mean, it's all disposable. So I suppose one could design masks like industrial masks I used to wear that were reusable, but most of the stuff I don't see anyway. But in the end, we have to dramatically, drastically suppress 
plastics production, except for emergency things like this. I mean, all the plastic wrappings in the grocery store and all the plastic bags, and it's just yeah. all got to go. There's just right. no way to have a sustainable planet when we're feeding the ocean. We're plasticizing the planet. We breathe plastics. We yes. eat it. We drink it. We breathe it. You know, they're just everywhere. And not to mention the critters in the ocean have to eat this stuff all the time. So there's no way to have, not, not only is there no way to have a permanently growing economy and have an ecological economy at the same time, there's no way to have it with many particular industries, just all kinds of industries. You know, you just cannot have an infinitely growing aviation industry. You can't have an infinitely growing plastics industry. You cannot have an infinitely growing iPhone industry. You know, you just have to completely reorganize, restructure production to make the products that we do need to be durable, long-lasting, rebuildable, upgradable, and so forth, you know, rather than to be disposed of, you know, we're just disposing of the planet, disposing of humanity. Well, I'm glad you did say, though, in this case, emergency use. And I should just say, just, you know, people, when you throw away your your masks, which are not reusable, at least cut the loop so that if they make their way into the water, they won't trap fish in the midst of the ear loop. In any case, let's, Richard, switch gears just a moment, although it isn't that much of a switch. And that is that, you know, the United States and China – are economic rivals for uh, world leadership. So they're rivals in many ways, but economic, but also, as you would contend and everyone else too, they're the leading polluters. So you contend that China's statist economy is driven by different drivers from capitalism. And I, before we go into sort of the different nature of their polluting claims or their greening claims, I want to just have you lay that out as quickly as possible for our listeners. Okay. Capitalism is motivated by profit. You know, profit's the driver. It's the engine of economic growth and development. Okay. But China is not a capitalist economy. It's a, what I call a hybrid bureaucratic collectivist capitalism or like otherwise. Market like, Stalinist is one market of the Stalinism. Is, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like that. It's a Stalinist, centrally, still, for all the marketization of the past decades, it's still mostly a planned economy. Xi Jinping, you know, they got their five-year plans every five years. It's a very systematically developed economy based on the state sector. It has an extensive private economy. It has a lot of foreign-invested companies, especially in the special economic zones of the coast, that produce for export and also for Chinese consumption. But it's mostly the bulk of the economy, more than half, is state-owned and state-run. About 30% is the export economy, which is joint venture, and the rest of it is China's private economy. So it's the state economy which was most of interest to me in the in, in my book, because it's not only the economy that's the largest, it's not only the largest share, but it's also the economy that's so different from capitalism. Its pattern of pollution and resource consumption is so much different than capitalism. And that was sort of the central takeoff point of my book about like, you know, I asked, so why is China's pollution problem is so massive, so much worse than, than other large industrial economies. Water, soil, oil pollution are the most grave problems facing China. But the CO2 emissions are really the most urgent because if they're not suppressed, then the rest won't matter. And in China's case, it, what's extraordinary, people, people know that China's emissions are large, but I think that not so many people appreciate just how large they are and how fast they're growing. In 1990, China's CO2 emissions were just half those of the United States. In the next 15 years, they more than doubled, overtaking the U.S. Then in just 12 years, from 2005 to 2017, China's emissions nearly doubled again to more than twice those of the U.S. 
although China's GDP was only 63% as large as the U.S. in 2017. It's often said, of course, that China's per capita emissions are much lower than those of the U.S., and its cumulative emissions are dwarfed by, by the U.S. That's largely true, but yet after three decades of breakneck growth, China is catching up fast. Per capita emissions surpassed those of the EU in 2014 and are now just under half those of the U.S. Yet U.S. per capita GDP, uh, China's per capita GDP is just 15 percent of the U.S. So their emissions are huge and the pollution is huge because it's a big country. It's 1.4 billion people and it's a lot of industry. But it's also what's interesting is and problematical is how disproportionate it is in relation to these other countries. You know, like China's CO2 emissions are not just twice those of the U.S., but more than the next six largest producers in the world, you know? This is really pretty extreme. So that was the point of departure for my book about why China's pollution problems, and it's not just the, the emissions, but their water pollution, soil pollution, all that. Why these are so extraordinary and so disproportionate to other large industrial powers, and what's the explanation for this? I hypothesized in this book that China's economy, its hybrid statist economy, and I use hybrid in a double sense, that China's economy is both composed of a smaller private sector economy and a private state joint venture economy, and then a fully state-owned economy. So it's hybrid in that sense, but it's also hybrid in the sense that the introduction of market incentives incentivized the state-owned producers to produce for market over and above their plan. So they produce for the plan, but they can sell their products over and above the plant on the free market. And it also, this was a deal Deng Xiaoping made with local officials back in 1992. And he also allowed them to produce on the side, create new products and produce them on the side. So local officials have a huge incentive to make money by producing like crazy. And not only that, but it's in China, for state-owned producers, this is capitalism when they're making money and socialism when <laughs> so that they can k- keep producing and overproducing. You know, like they'll produce mountains of steel they can't sell. They right. dump it on the world market a loss, but they're not worried. The state will bail them out. They produce endless blocks of apartment that people don't need and aren't buying. They put, produce whole ghost cities in China. I've visited these, in, these huge cities. I mean, there's no one in there. There's hardly anybody there, you know? And the population is on the verge of declining. It may already be declining. So that's interesting. Born, but they still produce this and the government still keeps them afloat. Well, why is this? It's, I mean, it's profit for the local officials to do this, but why is there so much overproduction and overconstruction and so forth? And so I hypothesize that in China's statist hybrid system, there are three principal drivers here. Really four, but I'm going to talk about the three main ones. The first is that ever since the days of Mao, the Chinese Communist Party has been in a kind of, you could say, uh, great leap forward mode since the 1950s to catch up and overtake the U.S. That's what Mao vowed to become the number one superpower. And they did that because they needed to do that because, for one thing, First, Mao was a nationalist. He was looking to restore China's ancient glory. But secondly, and and more importantly, as a communist state economy in a world (laughs) capitalist 
market of world imperialism, they saw, like Khrushchev and Stalin before them, Mao Zedong and Xi have seen, that the only security they can have in a world imperialist system is for them to be number one, to catch up, to be the leading technology power, to be the leading military power eventually, <laughs> to at least have parity, if not superiority, to the United States. And so that is the main driver of the Chinese economy. That's why the state restricts so much foreign investment. They limit it to certain areas, consumer goods, you know, or cars, this sort of thing. But foreign investors are barred from all the commanding heights of China's economy because they want to monopolize those and build those national champions to lead China and to eventually to dominate the world economy. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which is also different from capitalism, is that the Chinese Communist Party needs to, must seek to maximize employment, create jobs for everyone. And it's not because they're socialists, and they're far from that. It's mm. because they're afraid of the workers and they want to keep them busy. And so they need to create jobs for them. They don't want them standing around collecting unemployment and they don't have work. What they want to do is keep them working. So they keep them working, even if that means creating a lot of essentially make work jobs, building low, well, let's build a new high speed railway out to some province where hardly anybody lives, you know, or let's build another dam or let's build another skyscraper, you know, dozens of skyscrapers go up and they're mostly many most unoccupied, you know, but they want to keep people building and so forth. Also for the glory of the Communist Party. I mean, they build the cities and then they keep building the cities. And this chapter, there was a very interesting discussion, not from, from me, but from, an, from another guy, about how the local mayors find it in their interest to build new apartment buildings, and then 10 years later, tear them all down, and oh. build new ones all over again on the wow. same piece of land. It's so crazy, but this goes on in Shanghai. I've seen this. So they need to maximize employment, and that means that has consequences. It means putting people to work in permanent make-work projects that produce a lot of stuff people don't need. Okay, that's the second driver. The third driver is consumerism. Mm. And that is that since 1989, since the Tiananmen uprising, the Communist Party decided, they made a big decision after a struggle over two or three years. By 1992, they decided, we have to create a mass consumer economy like the West in order to get people's minds off politics. So they created, all, they budgeted in the five-year plans all kinds of new consumer goods. You know, automobiles were the big thing in the 1990s. And then aviation and eventually the internet and, and all kinds of consumer goods and IKEA stores and this kind of stuff. So you have a huge increase in consumer goods production in the 1990s and forward. And of course, needless to say, the Chinese were due for some, after centuries of poverty and decades of Maoist austerity, they were due for some creature comforts, you know? So they got those. But the system can't stop with that. They have to keep generating new fads and new means for people to keep them occupied. It's just constant production of consumerism. So that's the third driver. The fourth driver I won't discuss much now, but I have a whole chapter on this, which is corruption as a driver of overproduction and overconsumption. It's just really, really interesting material. So um, I'll stop there with that. But those are the main drivers of the economy. And that's what's different from capitalism, which is simply profit maximization. You know, it's really interesting as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, when I was studying the Soviet Union, which I've been a long time student yeah. of, there was one friend of mine who was writing a thesis during the height of the Brezhnev era 
on the convergence of the two systems. And I thought, well, no. And, you know, as it turned out, he was right in the worst aspect, because what you've seen now with the demise or the disintegration of the Soviet Union and this new form that's existed is that each side is borrowing the other's worst aspects. (laughs) So bureaucracy and this unbridled competition for growth, as you say, but also corruption as a big driver. And I think all of this is fascinating. But yeah, the worst of both worlds. Yeah, exactly. The worst of both worlds, and we're all suffering for it everywhere. But right. what I wanted to do, Richard, is to go, you know, there was a recent exchange in Monthly Review between the editors of Monthly Review and between you and uh, Simon Pirani, and it was about China's rhetoric and reality on climate change policies. And in a way, China presents this sort of paradox because it's the world's largest producer of renewables. And in fact, as in California, we're moving toward a lot of solar and making it part of our laws for all new construction. I don't know the exact proportion, but most of the stuff is manufactured in China and wind turbines and everything else. And so they are absolutely leading the world in the production of renewables. And as you've mentioned, President Xi Jinping has promised to reach carbon neutrality by 2060 and wants to turn China into an ecological civilization. And of course, now we've just heard from you that at the same time that he's doing that, you know, and as both you and Simon noted in your responses in this interchange, they are also driving fossil fuel expansion and coal. And you say that China's reckless, cheap and dirty mode of development has savaged its environment and its ecology. And that's really a lot of what your book, China's engine of environmental collapse is about, and it's about out-of-control pollution. So what about the claims for the China's ruling group that it's green and getting greener? And how does the model of growth that you've just very succinctly outlined and in a, made it very clear and the resulting pollution of it, you know, and you said that the difference with capitalism is one's for profit and the other one's for glory and for consumers and keeping the workers under check. But what more can you say about these competing ideas all within their policy? Okay, well, just just to go back on those three drivers, I want to stress the importance of the first, the nationalist driver to make China the most powerful, the leading technological economy in the world. That is far and away the leading driver of all these. The others are kind of subordinate, but that's the main thing. But they have a problem here, which is that you're right. See, China presents a climate crisis paradox. It, on, on the one hand, it's the largest producer of photovoltaic panels and wind turbines, too, although they don't lead in wind turbines. They do lead in solar panels, but not in turbines. It leads the world in the stall capacity of both, and she's promised to reach carbon neutrality by 2016. He wants to make China an ecological civilization and so forth. And then speaking to the UN in September, he called on countries to achieve a green recovery of the world economy in the post-COVID era. Yet, instead of prioritizing that green recovery, he's developing fossil fuels as fast, if not faster than renewables. So how do we explain that? And I think the explanation is that he needs the power. He needs the electricity. He needs all of the growth he can. His program is not to transition from coal and oil and natural gas. He's importing massive quantities of natural gas. He's the leading natural gas importer in the world. And they're trying to develop their own natural gas capacity and fracking and so forth like that. They're also the leading oil importer and so forth because, you know, they created these industries that consume oil. 
like cars. This is a really dumb industry you know, create. In some Western economies, they're trying to get rid of cars and get them out of the cities. Not China. They're trying to increase the cars. But they are the biggest car market in the world, the biggest producer of cars in just like a couple of decades and so forth. But they needed these like a hole in the head. When I was in China in the early 1990s, the fastest way to get across Beijing was on a bicycle. So the Chinese government is increasing, still growing coal power. Uh, you know, they built like 88 gigawatts of new coal-fired power plants last year. And yet, Thursday, on Thursday, at his conference with Biden and the other leaders on their, you know, the climate conference, uh, Xi Jinping said he wants to cap coal-fired power by 2025 in five years. Well, tell me, who builds coal-fired power plants for the last five years? There's hundreds <laughs> of them in, under construction right now. Those are not going to be shut down in five years. So... This is the problem. He needs that power. He needs all the electricity he can produce to, to support his nationalist industrialist program and also to support his consumer industries and also to keep people in jobs. So the upshot is that he's building all of the above, as Obama might put it. That's what he's doing. He's building renewables, but he's also building fossil fuel because I have an interesting discussion in my book about the fossil fuel versus renewable interest. It's the political economy of the bureaucracy. China is a highly compartmentalized Stalinist economy in which local officials find it in their interest to be self-sufficient as far as possible. And so you have this situation where most of the renewable energy in China is produced in the west of the country and then in the north of the country, out in Xinjiang and Tibet and the provinces out away from the coastal areas where the wind blows and the sun shines and there's less smog and so forth. So those are where the renewable energy plants, the solar and wind plants are concentrated. But it's also where the big rivers are and the dams and so forth coming down off the Tibetan highlands. And so the problem is, they needed to get that electricity to the coastal cities, you know, that used most of the electricity, right? So they built this whole network of ultra-high voltage power lines. They put them in connection with the east. And then they found that the local officials said, mm, no, thanks. We don't actually really want that power. We want our own local coal-fired power plants. Why is that? <laughs> well, they don't want to be dependent on renewable energy, which is intermittent, and the prices can vary. And it's well, you know, it's way to hell and gone out there, hundreds of thousands of miles away. So they don't want to be dependent on these foreign producers of energy, so to speak, because they're not their local provinces. And so you find that all over China, local officials prefer to have their own local power plants. Even particular factories will have their own power plants. And they're mostly coal-fired power because that's what China mostly has. It doesn't have a lot of oil. It's got a lot of coal. So that's what, that's what they do. So ironically, they built a lot of this stuff and it goes unused. They build huge solar power plants that are not connected to the grid. Or if they are connected to the grid, they're not selling the power. They're not able to sell it because the local officials in the East Coast don't want it. So that's been a huge problem for them. And that problem is specifically due to the relationship, the, the intra-bureaucratic relations of bureaucratic collectivism, the, the compartmentalization of the economy, the lack of a national grid or a national market for electricity exchange. That just doesn't happen there. They're like Texas, like every province is like Texas, you know. <laughs> this is really interesting, Richard, and we don't have the time to go into absolutely everything, but I, you've kind of answered the questions that I wanted to ask. Given that it's, you know, an authoritarian uh, and bureaucratic system of rule, you'd think that they would be able to just commandeer industry everywhere and say, we have to switch to renewables. And you're arguing that they're more or less 
abandoning this road to renewables or maybe just not in a rhetorical way in order to be the leading green power. But on the other hand, if they wanted to, couldn't they just or could they simply say to the coal industry, you know, you have to shut down or find a a better way to do this that doesn't pollute. And you've just talked about the competition between various regions. So maybe that answers it. But can you sort of explain that aspect? Oh, no, that's a fascinating aspect, too, because (laughs) the problem is that, you know, I quote this guy in this article I wrote on Xi Jinping. I quote this historian, uh, Adam Tooze, he's in Columbia, and he says, he has this great quote. He says, well, It's precisely because the Communist Party regime is bent on shaping the next century that its leaders take the climate change uh, seriously. In the calculus of the regime, Yangtze River floods are like Hong Kong protesters, a threat to its grip on power. The future of Beijing's authoritarian China dream looks far more uncertain in a world of runaway global warming. Therefore, he says, no other state, rich or poor, can match the authoritarian capacity of the Chinese regime to repress dissent among domestic losers in the transition. Well, what I argued is that despite Xi's intentions, he cannot make China carbon neutral because there are three real other. The fact is, those so-called losers, those lower level officials out there are not losers. They're not employees. He can't fire them. They're not, of course, he arrests and jails lots of corrupt officials every year. But that's not the, they're, they're trivial numbers compared to the whole system. You know, 90 million Communist Party members, you know. They can resist his demands to stop building coal-fired power plants because they have their good little thing going there. They're producing their goods and they're selling their power. They, they want the coal-fired power too, you know, because that's part of their local GDP. And wow. so... They have the ability to resist because they're members of the same Communist Party as Xi Jinping. And if they have their bases of support out in the provinces and all the way up to Beijing, political scientists once said that China's local officials are nothing if not Beijing, Beijing watchers. You know, They watch constantly to see how their man in Beijing is doing. He's a primus inter pares. He's not an absolute dictator. Xi Jinping. He cannot just order things to be done because what happens is there's massive resistance. And I discuss this at great length in the book. It's really interesting. Massive bureaucratic resistance to him. And so he doesn't have the power, the absolute power to just say, close down the coal industry and transition to renewables. He very well may want to do that. I don't doubt his sincerity, but he cannot do that because it's the structure of the bureaucratic relations mitigates that. He can't do that. Wow. So this is just fascinating and brilliant. And unfortunately, we've run out of time. So but Richard, we'll come back and discuss this because I think you've introduced a whole new set of let's call it constraints and restraints toward the ability to even fulfill what may be intended, which is to, you know, save the planet. And you say, on the one hand, China is not in control of the economy. And on the other hand, in the United States, profit is the engine. And so maybe the next time you come back, Richard, we're going to discuss what is possible. <laughs> and, and as you know, I'm the optimist and you're the pessimist. So I think it'll be a great discussion. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. And just to the listeners, Richard is a founding member of System Change, Not Climate Change, and he's the author of the book that we've been discussing in relation to all of this, and that's called China's Engine of Environmental Collapse, and that came out in 2020, Pluto Press, right? Yeah. And then the book before that is Green Capitalism, The God That Failed. So you've had the expert here, and I want to thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. Thanks, Susie. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and I'm very pleased to have Carlos Sardinia Galache with us for the very first time. We're going to be talking about the coup and the resistance to it in Myanmar. In case you maybe don't know about that, there is a full-scale conflict underway in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, and it's been steadily escalating since the military coup that overthrew the civilian government of Aung San Suu Kyi on February 1st, but the military has not managed to take full control and a massive civil disobedience movement has emerged and paralyzed the economy through strikes in key sectors, despite what we're seeing is pretty ferocious repression on the part of the military against the protesters. 740 have already been killed by the junta since February 1st. More than 3,300 have been arrested and the escalating conflict threatened economic collapse. The situation has garnered widespread attention. The Financial Times on Friday devoted their big read to Myanmar. And we're really fortunate to have Carlos Sardinia Galache with us. He's a Spanish journalist and an expert on Burma and Southeast Asia. That is the focus of his journalism. And he's also the author of a recent book published in 2020 by Verso called The Burmese Labyrinth, The History of the Rohingya Tragedy. We'll touch on that as well. And he has an article in the Verso blog, their new blog that's called Sidecar, that appeared on April 15th called A New Myanmar. And you can also read his many articles at Carlos Sardinia, one word, dot pressfolios.com. So welcome, Carlos Sardinia Galache, to Jacobin Radio. It's very nice to be here with you. Thanks so much. So maybe just because, you know, this is a subject that we tend to only read about when they something atrocious has happened in that part of the world. So for our listeners, maybe you could give an an overview to begin with of Myanmar's politics, its ethnic composition, the current political situation. One thing to note is that the military has been in power for much of its history since its independence from British colonial rule in 1948. So maybe in this overview, you can also talk about the sources of conflict and the repressive form of rule. Well, the first thing to understand about Burma is that Burma is a country that has been never totally finished. In terms of nation building, ever since independence in 1948, it has been a failure in the sense that most of the ethnic minorities who live in the periphery of the country don't feel a sense of belonging to the country and have been trying to separate or at least have autonomy within a federal system Whereas the majority in the center, the Bamar, have ever since independence tried to impose a centralized model of a state. And at some point in 1962, the 
military, the Tatmato, as the, mili- the Burmese military is called, took power in the country because they saw themselves as the only ones who could manage to keep Burma united. And that inaugurated 50 years of uh, military dictatorship, first under the guise of so-called Burmese way of socialist government, which was not really socialist, but that's another question. And after a massive uh, uprising in 1982, they adopted a capitalistic model on neoliberal lines, but still very much in power, the military. So then in 2011, they started what they call a disciplined flourishing democracy, which meant a multi-party electoral democracy with a parliament and so on, but still pretty much controlled by the military. The military kept a three control over three key ministries and 25% of the parliament and basically complete autonomy from the civilian government. And that culminated in 2015 with the victory of Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, the hider to enemy of the military, who had spent 15 years on the house arrest during the military dictatorship and so on, but who during the transition, the democratic transition, somehow had managed to be co-opted by the military, in which we might call convergence of elites, the pro-democracy elite led by Aung San Suu Kyi and the military elite. Now, for reasons that are not altogether clear so far, the military decided to put an end to that experiment with democracy on 1st February this year. The, the reasons they give is that there was voter fraud during the election in November and so on, but nobody really believes that. So we don't really know what happened in this intra-elite pact between the military and the pro-democracy camp, but something happened that made the military say, okay, we, we take the power back. Now, they claim that the coup which they don't call a coup, of course, because usually coup makers don't admit that they state a coup, is constitutional. But even according to their own constitution, it's not constitutional. And what has happened is that the coup has uh, triggered a huge popular uh, response against the military. And right now, you can describe the situation as a war between the military and virtually the whole of the Burmese population, ethnic minorities included. Wow. So I want to sort of go through all of what you've just said in a little bit more detail. But, you know, one of the things that many, like even in the uh, Financial Times, they say that the headline is, is Myanmar on the road to becoming a failed state? And you argue that it's never been a functioning state. And you just sort of gave this overview. And I think maybe we could just talk a little bit more about that. And that will, will get us to perhaps what is lying underneath this military coup, because you've just mentioned that there's also been some ideological or intra-elite conflict that we're not quite certain what it is. So let's just begin with that. What what are the reasons? You started to say there's been all these decades of military 
rule that uh, you also mentioned the Burmese road to socialism by, I think it's pronounced, Nguyen. And I remember, you know, back when I was coming of age politically, they would say that Burma was a state capitalist country, sort of like Nasser's Egypt, and those were the only ones, you know, in the world. And then nowadays they would say, no, crony capitalist, not state capitalist. So these are things that I want to unpack, but let's go back to the failed state or non-functioning state and conditions that led to the coup. Yeah, when I say that it's a failed state already, uh, well, it's not a failed state in the sense that it's a complete chaos. But uh, what I mean is that the military, the, the government, ever since independence, uh, hasn't managed to control the whole of the Burmese territory. Because several guerrillas from the ethnic minorities have established their own power states along the borders with China and mostly with China and with Thailand. Now, it's not so much a failed state as a failed nation in the sense that apart from the Bamar who live in the in the heartlands, nobody feels they are Burmese. You, you, you go there and you ask people, what are you? And, and if they are Kachin, they will say, I am Kachin. And I'm not Burmese, I'm Kachin. Whereas if you go to the Philippines, for instance, they won't tell you I'm Ilocano. They will tell you I'm Filipino. And secondly, I'm Ilocano. But in Myanmar, that's not the case. Because the project of nation building was a Bamar project from the beginning. And this is one thing I, I want to make clear. In this project, the pro-democracy camp led by Aung San Suu Kyi and the military are more or less on the same page. There are no essential differences between them and that. Both want a centralized state in which the ethnic minorities are going to have very little autonomy. So the reasons for the coup must be found somewhere else. And I, in my opinion, they are not ideological because when it matters in Burma, in the issues that, in the ideological issues that matter, basically Aung San Suu Kyi and the military are in agreement. Hmm. The, the main difference is who should have power, not what to do with this power, so to say. I'd like you to elaborate a little bit. I mean, maybe for the listeners, too, they don't even know, is there a difference between calling the country Myanmar and calling it Burma? Oh, What's the background of that? And then as you began to say, it's a failed nation, which implies, and, and I want to get into this in a bit, you talk about uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and the military sort of coming from the same place, but maybe with different forms of rule, one more democratic, one more autocratic military, but representing, I guess, a, 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 maybe you can tell me, a shared, is it a neoliberal version, a shared national version? You know, maybe mm. we could go into some of those. And I gave you too many questions all at once, but... <laughs> let's, let, let's try it. Uh, about Myanmar and, Bar uh, and Burma, I much prefer Burma because the name was changed to Myanmar in 1989 by the former military junta, but it wasn't changed in Burmese. It was only changed in other languages. In Burmese, it was called already Myanmar. Ah. So basically what they said, from now on, our official name should be also Myanmar in other languages. Which is like uh, Germany telling people, you have to call me Deutschland in English or in Spanish, instead of Germany and... Or Spain, not Spain, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So Thank basically, you. they argued that Myanmar was more inclusive of ethnic minorities, which is not true, because both Burma and Myanmar refer historically, before the British arrived, to the Bamar kingdoms in the central areas of the country, not including 
many of the ethnic minority areas. And they also said that Burma is a colonial name. But I don't really see why it should be a colonial name because, okay, the British arrived, they were imperialists, nothing to support about that, but they didn't change the name. They just hear the name that, that people call the country and they kind of translate it to their own language. It's not like the Philippines. The Philippines is a colonial name because they put the name of the Spanish king at that, at that time. I would say that's a colonial name, not Burma. Okay, Aung San Suu Kyi is the daughter of Aung San. Mm-hmm. Aung San is the father of modern Burma. He's the one who uh, fought against the British and then fought against the, the Japanese in World War II and negotiated the terms of independence with the British ahead of uh, 1948. But he was assassinated before independence, a few months before, when Aung San Suu Kyi was two years and a half old. And he was a Bamak. He was from the majority. And basically, he tried to get the ethnic minorities on board, but it was a very sketchy process by which he got them on board. He signed an agreement, but only with four groups. And it was not uh, really spelled out how the Burma would be, and then he was killed. And then Aung San Suu Kyi, in 1988, during the, the uprising against Nguyen, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, who was living at that time in the UK, uh, married with a famous letters scholar called Michael Harris, she was looking, the uprising found her in Rangoon because she was uh, taking care of her alien mother. And she was convinced by a group of people to lead the pro-democracy movement and to join the National League for Democracy. Now, this group of people is formed by some former military men. The chairman of the National League for Democracy, Utinu, who is now, I don't know, I think he must be now 95 years old or something like this. I, 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 I don't know exactly. He had been a commander-in-chief of the military during the Nguyen dictatorship. So, they all come from this Bamar background in which they see the ethnic minorities with certain distrust, in which they might have differences on the model of government, but all of them share this idea of a national project which is basically dictated on Bamar terms. And all of them share a vision of the nation which excludes uh, some groups deemed as foreigners. And that includes the Rohingya. Well, this uh, is where I really wanted to ask you. I mean, I was going to wait till you finished, but I'm going to do it right now and interrupt you because, you know, as I was reading your article, not just in Sidecar, but also I think one in Praxis and one in Jacobin, you, you go into some detail to try to explain all of the country and the various ethnic minorities, and you've just cleared up, and I think really well, that Aung San Suu Kyi and the generals belong to the Bamar majority, and yet there are these other ones. And maybe you could go into it and also talk a little bit about the citizenship rule that defines which national races are part of what is allowed in Burma, essentially, and as you just mentioned now, it excludes the Rohingya, and I think that for people in the West who were championing Aung San Suu Kyi and her road to democracy, they were shocked to see that she didn't leave a, lift a finger to help the Rohingya during the period of the last several years when they were being you know, subjected to literally a genocidal killing and leaving the country. 
And what is it about these various groups who are part of the population but are not allowed or are seen to be as threatening and needing to be excluded? Hmm. Well, according to the citizenship law passed by Nguyen in 1982, only the so-called national races are to have citizenship. Now, this is tricky because actually what the citizenship law says is whoever had citizenship according to the previous citizenship law should keep the his or her citizenship. And the Rohingya were, at, many of them qualified as citizens, and many of them were actually citizens. But it was decided that they are not a national race. So the, the law was approved in 1982, and in the 90s, the, in, in Rakhine, the place where they live, it was not really applied to them up until the early 90s. And basically what they did, it was like, okay, give us our documents. They, they went to all the Rohingya people, and we will give you back citizenship documents according to the new law. And even according to the 1982 citizenship law, they would have received citizenship. But basically what the government did was to take the documents and suddenly say, no, you are not a citizen because you are not a members of a national race. Now, national races in Burma are defined as those ethnic groups or racial groups who were in Burma before 1824, the date of the first Anglo-Burmese war when the colonial period started. And the debate is very much if the Rohingya were already there or were not already there before. Now, of course, many of them were already there, but many arrived from what is now Bengal during colonial times. And they mixed with the, with the ones who were already in Burma. And now it would be completely impossible to tell apart who is the descendant of those who arrived before and those who arrived during the colonial period. But they basically say, no, most of them, if not all, they arrived during colonial times, so they are not a national race. Does this citizenship law in any way resemble what India is trying to do? Is it a mirror of it's, it? Except that perhaps India is mirroring what was already happened in, in Burma? It seems so. It's very, it's very much similar. It's, it's this nativist, racialist conception of citizenship mm. that in Burma is taken to an extreme, and uh, in India it seems to be in the same direction right now, yes. Well, I ask that because while you were giving the overview of the situation, you said that the divisions or at least the conflicts in the leadership or in the leading faction and with the rest of the population did not seem to be based on class, but on ethnic and other uh, ethnic minorities or racial classification, according to these laws. And yet we're reading about in terms, and this will help us move into What's actually happening on the ground right now, that there are strikes in key sectors and that mm -hmm. and I wonder, like in terms of the rule of both on Sun Tzu Chi and the generals, you mentioned it had this neoliberal model of progress. So is there a, more of a class aspect that's being disguised? I guess I'm not being super clear, but I think maybe you could help by I, uh, helping us understand the sort of economic model or the political economy that, that is operating. Well, basically, you have a, an economy that during the dictatorship, mostly controlled by the military, uh, during the Newin era, in a kind of pseudo-socialist uh, system, 
or state capitalism. Mm -hmm. And in the military junta, the Slork SPDC period uh, from 1988 to 2011, in a purely capitalist system. Now, what they wanted to do was to open the market and to create a neoliberal model uh, during the, the military junta, but it never took off because of the uh, sanctions imposed by, by Western countries. And instead of that, what happened was this kind of crony capitalism in which the military controls through two big conglomerates a great part of the economy. And then you have a group of very, very rich cronies who made their fortunes uh, through their contacts with the military and who also have a big rise of the pie. Now, you can say that this neoliberal model uh, took off during the transition after to, uh, 2011. But at the same time, it took off a very vibrant group of uh, trade unions that took advantage of the new political liberalization. And Aung San Suu Kyi was not sympathetic to them. Aung San Suu Kyi was never supportive of this kind of mass movements, uh, trade unions, and so on. Because basically what she wanted to do is to assuage and to deal with the military in this kind of intra-elite rapprochement between the pro-democracy forces and the military. And... You know, mass movements are unpredictable, mass movements are not easy to control, so she was very reluctant to let this grow. And basically, she also approached the cronies, and she was like admonizing them to be moral. You have gotten your riches to your dealings with a dictatorship, but I believe that everybody has a second chance, and now you should use your riches to be good, and blah, 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 but not increasing taxes or control over fortunes or anything like that. No redistributive policies whatsoever, nothing of the sort. So that's what leads me to say that the difference between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military is not ideological. Mm. Because both have very much the same model. Both are neoliberal conservatives. And I would say that perhaps Aung San Suu Kyi, the closest to Aung San Suu Kyi is uh, Margaret Thatcher or something like that. Wow. <laughs> okay. Which, that puts it, which, makes it much more clear. <laughs> okay. Uh, moralistic, but free market and, and, and so on and so forth. But the military didn't want to share power with her. The ultimate question was, who is on the top? Is the military over the civilian government or is the civilian government over the military? And that was the conflict between them. And at some point, the military decided we take power again. This is really incredibly interesting. And so given the situation right now, this takes us right up to the present. And you know, I think the world was shocked that there was this level of resistance and a social movement that somehow came together or maybe was already there. And maybe they were pro-democracy and maybe they were more, more attached to, let's say, more radical solutions. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, one, were you surprised at the level of resistance despite, you know, this ferocious response by the new regime? And do you think they miscalculated when they took power, thinking they could just easily shove Aung San Chi out of the way and they'd go back to what they used to have? I really think that there is a lot of debate about this. And other people would tell you something completely different. But I think they really miscalculated. I think they didn't prepare the coup long in advance. There are some people saying, no, the coup was prepared for two years. I really don't think so, because if they wanted to prepare 
the coup and make it uh, acceptable to at least significant sectors of the population, they would have uh, created over time a situation of crisis in which uh, it would have made sense for some people to accept uh, a military takeover. But the skills, electoral fraud, nobody believed that in, uh, uh, anyway. I was a little bit surprised by the by the popular response, but not so much. The, the, the thing is that uh, people really hate the military environment. Really, really hate the military. I have lived a coup in Thailand in 2014. I was in Thailand where, where the military took over. And I remember that uh, Thai society was quite polarized. Let's say 50% supported the coup, uh, 50% uh, were against the coup. I don't know if it's exactly 50%, but you have large sectors of the population, conservative, royalist sectors, who supported the coup. Nothing of the sort has happened in, in Burma. Nobody supports the coup outside the military. Because the military doesn't have ideological legitimacy in the eyes of the Burmese population. And over the years, I have, you know, talking with many Burmese people, nobody really likes the military. The only time they liked them was when they attacked the Rohingya in 2017, because the Rohingya are seen as a threat by many men in Burma. That's so, pretty shocking. Yeah, go ahead. That's, that, that was pretty shocking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what happened is that during the liberalization process, there was a modicum of political liberty that many people didn't know before, there was access to internet that people didn't have uh, up until 2012. And that's important. Uh, and, you know, communications and so on. And there was the, the trade unions. So I think that most in the middle class was, were actually depoliticized. Like, they were happy with having Aung San Suu Kyi in power and trusting Aung San Suu Kyi to deal with the military. And Whatever Ansan Suchi did wrong, they, they could always put the blame on the military. See Sandra system, which she doesn't have many much room or to maneuver. But once they took Ansan Suchi from them, they fought against them. And these trade unions that I mentioned before, which are at the forefront of most of the protests, very well organized. They had the states fight for for the last 10 years, demanding better working conditions and so on. And now they have used these organizational skills and these networks to organize against the coup and the military. And there is no wonder that the repression in, in, in big cities like Yangon or Rangoon is especially bloody in the working class areas. Mm. It's in the working class areas where the military and the police are killing more people. Because it's the people who are in the barricades uh, opposing the, the, the rules most forcefully. And they, they are people who have nothing to lose, who don't really have nothing to lose. They, they, they have closed the economy and they want to win. And the middle class, especially the, the younger generation, they have lived for 10 years with certain liberties, with certain freedoms. And now they don't want to renounce to that and go back to the military dictatorship that Maybe they don't know, but they have heard so much. So everybody is united. And then you have the minorities who are also against the coup and who have suffered the violence of the military for decades, almost on a daily basis. And they are all joining together. And one of the most encouraging things that I'm seeing is that in social media and talking with friends is that a lot of Bamar people in the heartlands of the country who 
um, until two or three months ago, didn't have any idea or didn't want to think about the wars that were going on in the ethnic areas between the armed groups and the military, now are showing a newfound solidarity with the ethnic minorities, with the plight of the ethnic minorities, even including the Rohingya in some cases. So right now, it seems that the ethnic minorities and the Bamar are quite united, I would say even for the first time in history, against a common enemy who happens to be the, the military. This is really extraordinary. So in effect, this miscalculated move to assert power has ended up uniting what previously was a divided population. And that's that's pretty interesting. So my final question, because we're almost out of time, uh, Carlos Sardinia Galache, is what do you see ahead? What do you think? It's very hard to you know look into the crystal ball, but you've been mm. looking for a long time at this area. So what do you think may happen? I really don't know. I'm very reluctant to make predictions because actually ahead of the group, I was one of many people who were saying, no, there's not, there's not going to be a coup. And then there was a coup. So, uh, <laughs> like, virtually nobody said coming until maybe two or three days before the, the actual coup place. I think we are going to witness a very long, protracted, and bloody conflict. The military is not going to be bad. It has no reason to be bad. The military is ruthless and relentless. And the more they commit crimes, the more they are going to stay in their position and the more inflexible they are going to be. And the population, for what I'm seeing, is uh, seeing this struggle as a struggle for life or death. So right now, I think the only hope is that all the ethnic armed groups, and there are conversations for that, the creation of a federal army, uh, unite in a common front that attacks the military at the same time. So if the military has uh, the civil disobedience movement in the streets of, of uh, Burma's headlands, and all the or most of the armed groups in the territories attacking at the same time, the, 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 the Burmese military is going to get into real, real trouble to uh, manage to defeat all these enemies coming from all sides. But I think this is going to be very long and very violent. Well, I want to thank you for your candor and your clarity, Carlos Sardinia Galache. I think you've more than, you know, illuminated what the problems are and have not tried to make light, you know, of what lies ahead. And I hope that we can have you back as this unfolds to see, you know, further what, what's going on in Myanmar or Burma. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I just want to let the listeners know you can see uh, Carlos's uh, article on newleftreview.org website where you can find their new blog called Sidecar. It's really quite extraordinary, very well written and beautifully presented. And Carlos has an article called A New Myanmar. And he also has many other articles that you can find on his website, carlosardinia.pressfolios.com. And, of course, finally, uh, you can get his book that was published just this last year called The Burmese Labyrinth, A History of the Rohingya Tragedy. Carlos, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me.
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>